2: Your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true.
1: Happy Saturday. This past week we briefly mentioned Frederick Douglass in our episode on Lucy Stone. And something we spent just a little more time on is an open letter that Stone's husband Henry Blackwell wrote to be published in the South, arguing that granting voting rights to white women could offset the effects of suffrage for Black men. Something I had totally forgotten, even though I wrote our episode on Frederick Douglass, is that Blackwell's argument is mentioned in our episode on him, too.
2: So thanks to all of those connections, Frederick Douglass is today's Saturday classic. This episode originally came out on July 31st, 2017. Enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are just back from Seneca Falls. Yeah. They were so kind to
2: invite us to convention days.
1: Yes. At the Women's Rights National Historical Park. We had a live show there on Sunday, this past Sunday. It is now
2: Tuesday. We did uh unfortunately though we had a little bit of an issue with the recording
1: yeah well it's a there's a combination of factors we had the just immense honor of doing our live show in wesleyan chapel which is where the seneca falls convention was held uh as you might imagine from a a chapel dating back to that area it is essentially a big empty space (laughs) it's a big box adjacent to the road um so, like for a number of reasons, it just we were not able to get clear audio of the uh live show that we did that day. So we are still going to talk about Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Uh we'll just do a studio a, version. Yes, a studio version of that show. We do definitely, though, want to thank the folks at the National Park Service um and Ashley Nottingham, who was the person who did all of the arranging or a lot of the arranging with us specifically for this. Like, thank everyone for having us out because we had a wonderful time.
2: Yeah, we had... I, I was so delighted by just how fun and kind and welcoming and warm everyone was. It was really lovely.
1: Yes. Uh, and it is also a better service to Frederick Douglass to, to have a nice clean recording of him rather than uh, the somewhat noisier one from On The Day. So, today... As we just said, we are going to talk about the life and work of orator, writer, statesman, and social reformer Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass's work was just tireless and prolific, and we could literally fill a whole episode of our show just listing off the titles of all his writings and all the positions that he held and all the laws that he influenced and all the speeches that he made and all the peoples whose rights he championed during his lifetime. He was even nominated for Vice President of the United States on the ticket with Victoria Woodhull in 1872, just just as an example of a thing that happened that we're not even going to talk about in detail today. So our focus is really going to be on how his early life shaped the truly remarkable advocate that he became— And his work with the two primary causes that he campaigned the most for. He campaigned for a lot of stuff that would all fall under the umbrella of, like, humanitarianism and human rights in some way. Uh, But the two biggest parts were the abolition of
2: slavery and women's suffrage. Frederick Douglass was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey around February of 1818 in a region of Maryland's eastern shore known as Tuckahoe. He was enslaved from birth, and his exact birth date and place of birth are not known. His father was white, and although there was speculation that he may have been the owner or overseer of Douglas's mother, Harriet, his identity remains unknown as well. Douglas was separated from his mother while still
1: a baby and sent to live with her parents, Betsy and Isaac Bailey. Betsy was enslaved and Isaac was free. And Betsy was known for her skills as a nurse and her knack for making and using fishing nets, along with being particularly good at growing sweet potatoes. People from all around would come to Frederick Douglass's grandmother. To be like, can you help me out with my sweet potatoes because you are the best at growing them.
2: That's a good life skill to have, man. But Betsy's primary duty was actually caring for children. In particular, her five daughter's children. Enslaved women were typically sent right back to work as soon as possible after giving birth and they were not allowed to raise their own children. So Frederick had very little memory of his mother until the age of about seven.
1: Those years with his grandmother were an odd mix of relative freedom and a growing comprehension that he was not free. The children had few physical comforts, they just they didn't have really playthings or much to eat, but they also had few worries or constraints. In My Bondage and My Freedom, which was one of Douglas's autobiographies, he described the early years of a young enslaved boy as, quote, in a word, he is, for the most part of his first eight years of life, a spirited, joyous, uproarious, and happy boy, upon whom troubles fall
2: only like water on a duck's back. But as he got older, Douglas gradually came to perceive that the cabin that they were living in was not his grandmother's. It and his grandmother, all of the other children, and he himself, were in fact the property of someone they knew as old master, and that was Captain Aaron Anthony. And Douglas faced a dawning understanding that he would, at some point, be forced to leave his grandmother to begin a life of enslaved labor.
1: That happened when Douglas was seven or eight, and he was sent to the plantation of Colonel Edward Lloyd, who had previously been governor of Maryland and a United States senator. And there, a woman known as Aunt Katie was the one responsible for the children, including some of her own. So she was sort of an exception to the typical behavior that women were not allowed to raise their own children. Aunt Katie's treatment of the children was incredibly cruel, and Douglas often went hungry when she would give his share of food to her own children instead.
2: And it was on Lloyd's plantation that Douglas got to see just a little more of his mother, who was a field hand on another plantation. Even then, however, he didn't see her very often at all, and she died when he was not yet 10 years old. After her death, Douglas learned that, quite unusually for a field hand— she had actually known how to read, and in later years, when racist commentators suggested that his skill with language probably came from his white father, he would insist that the credit should instead go to his mother.
1: He still wasn't, at this point in his life, big enough to do fieldwork, so while on Lloyd's plantation, Douglas did chores and errands, mainly for Lucretia Ald, who was Captain Anthony's married daughter. When Douglas was about eight, he was then hired out to another one of the Aulds, Hugh Auld, Lucretia's brother-in-law, who worked as a ship carpenter in Baltimore.
2: Douglas would later describe this as, quote, one of the most interesting and fortunate events of my life. Not only was he removed from the cruelty and brutality of the plantation, but he was also introduced to Hugh's wife, Sophia. Apparently, unaware that it was illegal or that its illegality was a technique for controlling enslaved people, Sophia taught Frederick to read.
1: Hugh Auld put a stop to these reading lessons as soon as he found out about them. But it was at this point too late to stop Douglas from learning how to read. And Frederick Douglass had already realized that literacy would be a key to finding his way to freedom. So when Sophia's reading lessons stopped, Douglas started trading his bread to white children that he would run into when he was out on the Ald's errands. And he would do this in exchange for their
2: teaching him a few words out of a Webster's spelling book. He also gradually saved enough money to buy another book, The Columbian Orator, and this was a collection of speeches and essays and poems that had come into use as a school book. It began with general instructions for speaking, and it included the work of men like George Washington, John Milton, Socrates, and Cicero. And this he read and reread, finding a piece called Dialogue Between a Master and Slave particularly compelling. And in that piece of writing, a master chastises his recaptured slave for having run away, and the slave, eloquently dissecting the inhumanity and injustice of slavery, convinces the master to free him.
1: This is to me one of the most amazing things about Frederick Douglass. He was not just teaching himself to read by practicing. He was teaching himself rhetoric and how to make an argument and eloquence by studying this work. And the whole time that he was living in Baltimore, he continued teaching himself, eventually also using old copybooks and schoolbooks belonging to the Ald's son in order to teach himself how to write. And as he got older, he started teaching other enslaved children he met to read as well.
2: Baltimore was formative in other ways, too. Douglas first heard the word abolition while he was there, and he began to piece together that there was an abolitionist movement working to end slavery. He also became religious, worshiping at an African Methodist Episcopal church, while simultaneously coming to understand that the scriptures were being used to both justify slavery and to convince enslaved people that they should submit to it. He became increasingly aware of the hypocrisy of Christian slave owners who applied Christ's teachings only to white men while treating their enslaved workforce with severe cruelty.
1: Frederick Douglass remained in Baltimore for about seven years. Uh, at this point, there was a series of deaths uh, within his owner's family as well as some inner family drama, and Thomas Auld demanded that he be returned to the plantation. Douglas only worked directly for Thomas Auld for about nine months, though. He had become, in the eyes of his enslavers, a troublemaker. He tried to start a Sabbath school to teach other enslaved people, and he started standing up for himself and other people. So
2: from Thomas Auld's point of view, Douglas had been ruined. So Thomas Ald hired Douglas out to a man named Edward Covey, who was a notorious slave breaker. So this is a man to whom slave owners would hire out their troublesome enslaved people for free so that he could train them. And in Douglas's words, quote, Mr. Covey could have under him the most fiery bloods of the neighborhood for the simple reward of returning them to their owners well broken. For the next six months, Covey beat Douglas on a nearly daily basis, and he also engaged in a sort of psychological warfare, which was meant to make him feel as though he was constantly watched and constantly threatened. In
1: 1835, after his time with Covey was up, Douglas was hired out as a field hand to William Freeland, who was not nearly as cruel as Thomas Ald or Edward Covey had been. Douglas once again tried to start a Sabbath school to teach and educate other enslaved
2: people. On January 1st, 1836, Douglas resolved that he would be free by the end of the year, and he planned to liberate several of the other men enslaved with him as well. He forged passes for the group, which said they had permission to go to Baltimore, but unfortunately their plan was discovered and all of the men were captured and taken to jail.
1: After this escape attempt, Thomas Auld decided it would be best to send Frederick Douglass away, especially because of the Sabbath school and the influence that he was having among the enslaved people in the neighborhood. It wasn't just that Thomas Auld was finding Douglass's behavior to be unacceptable. It was also that he was drawing the ire of other slave owners in the area Thomas Ald was afraid that some harm was going to come to his property. So Douglas was sent back to Baltimore, and it was from there that he ultimately would escape. And we will get to that after a quick sponsor break.
3: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
0: Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So
1: back in Baltimore with Hugh and Sophie Ald. Frederick Douglass was first hired out to a shipyard, but after being attacked by a group of white laborers, which is something the authorities refused to investigate because no white witness would attest to it, he was allowed to seek out his own work. He would basically go and solicit work in places that he f- felt more safe working. And then he would turn over all of the pay that he earned to Hugh
2: Auld at the end of each week. And eventually, Douglas asked for permission to hire himself out during his off hours. And this would allow him to keep the pay above and beyond what was due back to the Alds. And it was viewed as a huge privilege. He secretly planned to save this pay in order to fund his escape. But his permission to hire his time was revoked after he attended a camp meeting one Saturday night instead of delivering his pay to Hugh Auld on schedule.
1: This pushed Douglas's plans to escape into high gear. He was basically afraid that if he made any kind of wrong move, it was going to become even harder for him to escape. They would be keeping an even closer eye on him. At this point, he had met and fallen in love with a free Black woman named Anna Murray. She secured a sailor's uniform for him and gave him some of her savings to fund the way. And then he traveled using identification papers that had been borrowed from a free Black man. He traveled by train and then steamboat and left Baltimore and traveled to New York City on September 3rd. 1838. For a long time, he would not tell anyone exactly how he had done this because he was afraid that if he did, that escape route from Baltimore would get shut down.
2: And once he arrived at a safe house belonging to abolitionist David Ruggles, he sent for Anna, and they were married on September 15th. The pair would eventually have five children together, Rosetta, Louis, Frederick, Charles, and Annie.
1: Knowing that Douglas had worked caulking ships in Baltimore, Ruggles suggested that he go to New Bedford, Massachusetts, which had a large whaling and shipping industry, as well as a sizable free Black community. Douglas had traveled under several names while making his way to New Bedford, eventually landing on Johnson. But once he got there, there were so many other Johnsons in New Bedford that he thought it would be confusing to have yet another one. So he and Anna took the last name of Douglas.
2: At first, the Douglass' life in New Bedford was dedicated to just trying to make ends meet and to find a home in their new community. And Douglas also resumed going to church. After encountering segregation and racism at New Bedford's Methodist Church, he joined the African Methodist Episcopal Zionist Church, and eventually he became a lay minister there.
1: A few months after settling in New Bedford, Douglas got a copy of William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. This was his entry into the anti-slavery movement that he had first heard about back in Baltimore. Soon, he was attending abolitionist meetings, and in 1841, he attended and spoke at an anti-slavery convention in Nantucket. This was his first time really speaking in public, and he didn't think he did a particularly great job, but afterward, John A. Collins of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society asked Frederick Douglass to come and work for them as a speaker. He began to travel around the North and Midwest speaking
2: against slavery. And although Douglass had a remarkable ability to draw from his own experience to change hearts and minds, his opposition to slavery was not about his own enslavement. His focus was on humanity as a whole and the inherent brutality and destructiveness of the institution of slavery. But by writing about his own experience, he was giving potential abolitionists, particularly in the North, something many had lacked, and that was a window into the realities of the institution of slavery.
1: This was incredibly important to the success of the movement for abolition, especially in the North. Slavery affected people's lives, particularly white people's lives, in really dramatic ways that they weren't necessarily even consciously aware of. Many wealthy and prominent families had earned their fortunes either directly through the slave trade or through industries that relied on enslaved labor. So even if no one in a community was currently enslaving anyone, it was incredibly likely that its wealthiest and most influential families were living on inherited wealth that came at least in part from
2: slavery. And people were also traveling on roads and railroads and attending schools and working in buildings that had been built by enslaved people, including the U.S. Capitol building. So people were living in a nation that had been built on and financed through slavery, but they often didn't have a conscious connection to what any of that actually meant.
1: That changed as Douglas spoke and wrote about fighting off dogs for crumbs of food, sleeping on bare floors with little protection from the cold, brutal beatings the murder of an enslaved man named denby at the hands of an overseer the willful destruction and separation of enslaved families and the constant exhausting work that continued well after the workday was over as enslaved people then had to care for their own food
2: care for their quarters mend their clothes and on and on But it wasn't simply Douglass' documentation of the daily conditions and degradations of enslavement that influenced the abolition movement. He also wrote extensively on how the institution of slavery impacted the enslavers as well as the enslaved. By making enslaved people into a class that was supposedly less than human, enslavers were also corrupting their own humanity.
1: These were all things that Douglass had experienced and learned and thought about during his years of enslavement, and he was particularly adept at putting them into words in a way that motivated readers and listeners to act We should make clear he wasn't the only previously enslaved person that was writing and speaking about their own experience, but he did become particularly famous. In 1845, he published the first of three autobiographies, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, in part to debunk critics' claims that he was too eloquent to have ever really been a slave. And in it, he detailed the experiences that we talked about in the first part of our
2: episode today including naming who his owners had been. And that was a colossal risk. Under fugitive slave laws, he could be captured and returned to Maryland. And as his book became a bestseller, he left the country, sailing for Liverpool on August 16th of 1845. He arrived in Britain just before the start of the Great Famine in Ireland.
1: As a side note, This was not the only time that Frederick Douglass would have to flee the country. He did again in 1859 after John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, after investigators found a letter that Douglass had written that could have led to his being named as a co-conspirator. Douglass, at that point, didn't return home until 1860 as the nation was careening towards civil war after learning that his daughter, Annie, had died at the age of
2: 11. So jumping back to 1845, for nearly two years, Douglass traveled around the British Isles and spoke against slavery and for civil rights. And while he was there, British supporters raised the funds to purchase his freedom. Thomas Auld first sold him to Hugh Auld for the sum of $100, and Hugh released him from slavery on December 5th, 1846. Douglass returned to the United States the following year, and he and his family moved to Rochester, New York.
1: Douglas received some criticism for allowing himself to be purchased, since to some it legitimized the institution that he was fighting against. They basically thought he was being complicit in the very thing that he was advocating to have abolished. But from Douglass's point of view, he had a calling and a duty to return to the United States and continue to fight slavery, something he would best be able to do if he was not simultaneously trying to evade capture or captured and returned
2: south. Of course, the Civil War started in 1861. And by that point, Frederick Douglass was one of the most famous black men in the United States. Although the South was fighting the war in large part to protect and expand the institution of slavery, at first the North was fighting primarily to preserve the Union. Douglas became an outspoken advocate for making the abolition of slavery one of the Union's goals as well. And he also recruited for the Union Army, and two of his sons served in the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. In 1863, Douglass met with Abraham Lincoln about the treatment of Black soldiers fighting for the Union and advocated for their receiving equal pay.
1: Of course, the abolition of slavery did ultimately get folded into the Union's goals in the Civil War, and when the war was over, slavery was indeed abolished. Douglass then turned his attention to protecting the lives and civil rights of African Americans, including campaigning for the right to vote. He also encouraged abolitionist organizations to turn their attention to Native Americans, whose condition he called, quote, the saddest chapter in our history. Frederick Douglass never, uh, like, looked at an accomplishment and then said, okay, we're done now. (laughs) If If the thing he had been campaigning for was successful, he would then find the next thing.
2: Yeah. And after the war, he also held a number of social and political positions, including charge d'affaires for the Dominican Republic, minister, resident, and consul general to Haiti, and the recorder of deeds of the District of Columbia. He served as president of the Freedmen's Savings Bank, and he was on the board at Howard University. The list of accomplishments and appointments that he had goes on and on and on.
1: It is quite lengthy. Um, And even before the Civil War, Frederick Douglass had become a supporter of women's rights. And especially because we were uh, originally giving this episode as a live show at convention days (laughs) in celebration of the anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention made a lot of sense to spend a little more time on that, which we are going to do after another quick sponsor break.
3: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend Bob. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
0: Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Frederick Douglass first met Susan B. Anthony in 1845, but his direct involvement with the movement for women's suffrage really started after he moved to Rochester with his family in 1847. That December, he published his first issue of his newspaper, The North Star, which was one of several newspapers he would create and run during his lifetime. The North Star was printed with the motto, right is of no sex, truth is of no color. God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren.
2: And the Seneca Falls Convention began on July 19th of 1848, and Douglass was one of only 32 men out of about 300 attendees. Of these men, he was the only one who supported Elizabeth Cady Stanton's resolution that women be allowed to vote, and he seconded her motion that the right to vote be one of their resolutions. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Sentiments.
1: Another women's rights convention was held uh, almost immediately in Rochester on August 2nd of 1848, and Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton recommended that Douglas be made its chair. Although he ultimately wasn't, he did attend and speak at this convention as well, and both conventions uh, were covered in the newspaper of the North Star. This was really... um, Like, Frederick Douglass was already under a huge amount of scrutiny because he was a Black man living in America, and becoming involved in the women's rights movement brought on a whole other layer of scrutiny because men who were involved in the movement were viewed with extreme suspicion and derision. There was a lot of undertone of, like, something must be wrong with you for you to be into this.
2: Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of bravery in that move. And in addition to being actively involved in the movement for women's rights and suffrage, Douglass took those ideas back with him to the movement for abolition. In 1848, Douglass presided at the National Convention of Colored Freedmen in Cleveland, and under his leadership, the convention passed a resolution affirming equality between the sexes, and women were actively invited to participate. Douglass presided over and introduced similar affirmations at other abolitionist meetings as well although obviously there were also Black suffragists such as Ida B. Wells
1: Barnett and Anna Julia Cooper, the suffrage movement as a whole was largely focused on the needs and wants of relatively affluent white women. Like if you read the Declaration of Sentiments, there are parts in it about things like your property becoming your husband's property when you marry. So we're starting from the foundation of women affluent enough to have property. Kind of a narrow segment of women at the end of the Civil War, reconstruction efforts to guarantee civil rights, including the right to vote to former slaves and their descendants clashed with this focus of looking for voting rights for white women.
2: At first, it actually seemed as though these two movements for suffrage could combine. At the first Women's Rights Convention after the Civil War, its name was changed to the Equal Rights Association, which would work toward universal suffrage, not just suffrage for women. And Frederick Douglass was one of the Equal Rights Association's three vice presidents.
1: But as the Reconstruction amendments to the Constitution were drafted, a schism developed within the movement. The May 1869 meeting of the Equal Rights Association took place after Congress had passed the 15th Amendment as it was up for ratification by the states. This amendment read, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So this amendment made no reference to the right to
2: vote as related to sex. And Douglas was willing to accept this less-than-universal suffrage because he knew how much resistance there was to women's voting rights in much of the nation. And he thought it was likely that the 15th Amendment could only be ratified if it didn't include women. He also thought that white women wanted the right to vote but had other ways to take political action, while overall the black population desperately needed to vote because they had no other means to take political action themselves. Of course, many of the Equal Rights Association vehemently disagreed. In the
1: ensuing discussion, Douglas said, quote, When women, because they are women, are dragged from their homes and hung upon lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains dashed out upon the pavement, when they are objects of insult and outrage at every turn, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, when their children are not allowed to enter schools, they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to Black men. Someone from the audience then asked whether this was not also true of Black women as well, and he answered, yes, 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 it is true of the Black woman, but not because she is a woman, but because she is Black. So he was basically pointing out that, like, yes, it was right and and important for women to have the right to vote, but the need was a lot more dire for Black people to have the
2: right to vote. The debate over the 15th Amendment split the Equal Rights Association. At the conclusion of the meeting, it was disbanded, with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton forming the National Woman Suffrage Association to, once again, focus only on voting rights for women, even to the extent of directly opposing the 15th Amendment. Those who supported the 15th Amendment formed the American Woman Suffrage Association.
1: We should also make it clear that this was not just an ideological dispute over the wording of the 15th Amendment and whether it included any references to sex or gender. There was also explicit racism at work with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for example, saying, quote, what will we and our daughters suffer if these degraded Black men are allowed to have the rights that would make them even worse than our Saxon fathers? I also kept finding... Reference to a quote by Susan B. Anthony about how she would rather cut off her right arm than campaign for vote for Black people before women. I couldn't find the original place where she purportedly said that, but it came up over and over There were also elements of the suffrage movement who argued that women should have the right to vote because white women would help form a voting bloc that would help maintain white supremacy even if black people could also vote. And one such advocate of this was Henry B. Blackwell, husband of suffragist Lucy Stone.
2: When the 15th Amendment was ratified on February 3rd, 1870... Frederick Douglass immediately began campaigning for a 16th Amendment to grant voting rights to women, and he would continue to advocate for women's suffrage for the rest of his life. Sadly, Charlotte Woodward was the only signer of the Seneca
1: Falls Convention's Declaration of Sentiments to live to see the ratification of the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote on August 18th of 1920. Apparently, because of her poor health, she never actually got to vote herself, But even then, the same racially discriminatory voting laws that had already been suppressing Black men's right to vote since the end of Reconstruction just applied to Black women as well. So although the letter of the 19th Amendment gave Black women the right to vote, it was not until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that many Black women and other women who are part of, uh, you know, minority populations were actually able to do so. And, of course, discriminatory voting laws and attempts to suppress voters still exist today. I feel like every time I turn around, there's another case before the Supreme Court about it.
2: To close out his story, we're going to return for a moment to Frederick Douglass' last years. In the 1870s, he moved to Washington, D.C., and his wife, Anna, died of a stroke in 1882. In 1884, he remarried a woman named Helen Pitts, which raised some eyebrows because she was about 20 years younger than he was, and she was also white.
1: On February 20th, 1895, Frederick Douglass went to a meeting of the National Council of Women. He came home and began preparing to give a speech at a local church when he died suddenly of a heart attack. He was about 77. He had been campaigning for equal rights until literally the last day of his life. That is Frederick Douglass. We were actually joined by Frederick Douglass there in Seneca Falls.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was quite exciting. (laughs) Uh, They had a wonderful reenactor there who was really great. And he came in halfway through and I turned into Buddy the Elf. (laughs) I was so excited to see him. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, he uh he was very gracious. He he was um he was so kind. He <laughs> we had a lot of people who wanted to have pictures made uh after the show. Um and he accommodated everyone and was super and just was gracious
2: just, and warm and lovely the whole time.
1: Yeah. He was great. Yeah. So everyone we met uh in while we were in Seneca Falls um was gracious and kind and welcoming. The the National Park Service staff that we met were all amazing. We, as I said at the top of the show, we were so uh, honored to be able to do this show um, there in the Wesleyan Chapel. It's, it's great. So if you get a chance to go to Seneca Falls, especially to go to a future convention days, uh, yeah, we had a great time. It's a pretty great event. Yeah. Sadly, we did not get to spend a ton of time in Seneca Falls. It was a very uh
2: that was a quick quick turnaround
1: trip (laughs) yeah Yeah, it was a a quick turnaround trip for both of us uh oh and i also would like to thank my spouse for riding with me slash (laughs) driving the car all the way there and back we made a weekend trip out of it and i i don't think i could have made the drive by myself because it's 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 a stretch Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old Stuff Works" email address no longer works. And you can find us all over social media at MissedInHistory.
3: Side. side.